0: Basically, you take a dollar. If you added a dollar to value divided by 0.05, which is your 5% cap rate on average in California, and then that's basically one over 20, which means you added $20 to your value of your property. So that is essentially the math, the exponential math that we need to be working if you want to, you know, invest and make money in California. The cash flow itself protects you from the downside, right? So if you have an apartment complex that's cash flowing, it protects you from the downside because you, I mean, worst case scenario, like in COVID or whatever, I just hold on to it and the cash flows, I'm good. Nobody's going to have to force me to sell. And even if I had to finance my, hold on to my hard money loan, it still makes sense for me because I have that equity in there and there's a good amount of cash flow coming in.
1: This is the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan, where we interview local real estate investors and professionals to go over tips, tricks, and investing strategies to help you learn about the business and to enable you to achieve your financial goals. And now, welcome to the show. Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. If you thought that buy and hold investing in the Bay Area doesn't make sense, then think again. Today, we have Sri Latha. Sri is a real estate investor who specializes in multifamily investments here in the Bay Area. And in this episode, Sri will explain how to invest in the Bay Area the right way and how to analyze these deals. She'll share her strategies on how to acquire multifamily properties how the Cash for Keys process works, and how to drastically force appreciation. If you're interested in investing in Bay Area real estate, then you need to listen to this episode. If you're new to this podcast, subscribe to the show and leave a review. We release episodes every Wednesday and Sunday and release the show notes on our site, everythingri.com podcast. By the way, if you need help financing your next real estate project, check out Conventus Lending. Conventus is the best hard money lender with amazing rates and incredible service. I've used them for years and they've always been incredibly easy to work with. If you need a hard money loan, contact me at Sean at everythingrei.com to get $1,000 off of your processing fee. And if you want to know the secrets of how investors in the Bay Area are making huge profits in one of the most expensive markets in the world, download the free Ultimate Bay Area Investing Handbook on our website, everythingrei.com. Enjoy. Okay, Shri, thank you so much for being on our show today. Go ahead and introduce yourself and let us know who you are and tell us what you do.
0: Cool. Thanks for having me. I'm Shri. I'm a multifamily investor here in the Bay Area. I'm based in the Bay Area. I started investing in 2014. I bought a 12-unit apartment complex in Texas, and I sold that in a year and a half. I moved my money back to California, and I've been buying and selling in uh, the East Bay ever since. I tend to do a lot of heavy renovations on all my properties. I do three main strategies. I do ADUs. I do cash for keys. And I do layout changes to my units. And that's pretty much where the heavy renovation part comes in. And right now, I'm in contract on a hotel to multifamily conversion. And that's pretty much where I'm at right now.
1: It's a lot of good stuff. And we're definitely going to go through every single one throughout this interview. So first things first, how did you get into real estate? And you know, most people, when they get into real estate investing, they're going to buy a single family home. You jumped right in and got a 12 unit in Texas. Tell us about that.
0: It's kind of a sad story, actually. (laughs) But somewhere in, in, in 2011, my husband kind of went to work and he found that he couldn't walk anymore. So we were sitting in a doctor's office and the doctor was asking me, like, do you have disability insurance and all these questions? And I was like, why is she asking me this? And she pretty much said, you know, you should be prepared for your husband to be disabled in five years. And that was kind of like the dagger to my heart. And we were like, we need to do something about this. Like we need to figure this out. So if this were to be true, we need to make sure we can replace his income. So that was the really the fire that lit the whole real estate thing. And that's what I guess a lot of people ask me, where does the motivation really come from? That's where it started. It started from a need to get passive income. So at that point, we were just starting to save for a house. But we changed our plans and we said the first property we're going to buy is going to be an investment property. We're going to buy as many units as we can. So the moment we had a reasonable down payment saved up, we bought our first property in Texas. So the single family, to me, I always do the financial analysis. So I always put everything into a spreadsheet. There's no way the single family made any sense in terms of getting us closer to financial freedom, especially Given the prices in the Bay Area, you can live in it, you can enjoy it, but it's not getting you anywhere closer to financial freedom by buying a single family house and living in it. So the decision was pretty clear where I actually saw a four unit actually in Burbank in San Jose. I drove there in 2014 and I looked at it and I put down the math and I was like, it actually had a little bit of extra space at the back. And I said, oh, what would it look like if there was a fifth unit in here? And then I started doing the math for more units and the moment I saw that progression going from single to multi and how the, it compounds your, your cash flow, I was just sold. And then I said, I'm just going to buy the maximum number of units I can buy in a somewhat reasonable market. And it just happened to be out of state.
1: So can you talk about that? How did you discover the, the area you bought in Texas and how did you find your first property?
0: So we bought our first property in Dallas, Texas. And it was, in some ways, it's kind of just kind of jumping into the, into the water without really knowing what you're doing. We didn't really do too much like sophisticated research into the market or anything. We just kind of, I think you mentioned this before that you've done it. You kind of just Google like, what are the top multifamily markets in the US? And you would just see the same names over and over. And we were like, oh, Dallas sounds good. And it doesn't have kind of one main employer. It's not like oil heavy. So we said, okay, that sounds, Dallas sounds good. And then we just started looking on LoopNet and we found a few properties, learned how to underwrite a little bit. We got into contract on one that fell through and then we found another. We found a good broker. So that's the key to getting anything to work out of state is finding a good good broker and then finding a good property manager to go with that. So we found a good broker. We were able to close. Actually, we bought it from a wholesaler apartment wholesaler and then we closed on that property within a year and a half we renovated all the units because they don't have rent control and you can you know turn the units every time the lease ends so the lease ended and then we just turned each of the units we renovated put brought them up to market and in about a year and a half they were all done and we just put it back on the market and sold it twice our down payment out from that and then brought it back to oakland i mean east bay
1: that sounds great. Do you want to talk about the numbers involved with that deal?
0: Sure. So we bought it at seven hundred and sixty. No, so yes, yeah, dollars. Put in about one hundred and forty thousand dollars in renovation, and sold it for one point five five. So that's pretty much where it ended up at when we sold.
1: So then, what did you do afterwards? You took that money from Texas and you brought it into Oakland. Why did you move away from Texas?
0: A couple of reasons. We were inexperienced when we started. And so we thought that the tenant, you know, uh, demographic was better in California. And so we thought, oh, you know, maybe the next thing we do is we buy and we just hold it. So why don't we do that in California? So that was kind of the motivation to move to California. We learned a couple of lessons also about leverage, because when we first started, we put, we had to, because we didn't know any better. We put a huge down payment, which we didn't expect to do. But it just turned out that on your first deal, you don't have all the experience and all this, all the knowledge to know what you're getting into. So we ended up putting almost 30, 35% down on that first $700,000 deal in Texas. And then when we moved back here, we discovered hard money and that made life a lot easier in terms of scaling the business.
1: So can you talk about how you financed your first property? Because I know it's pretty hard to get a commercial loan for that smaller price point
0: for lack of a better word, didn't know any better. We actually went to a kind of a big bank. We went with Wells Fargo, who doesn't even have a large commercial division, but we got pre-approved and all that stuff which we thought we needed to do in order to you know get through uh, financing this deal and we didn't have anyone kind of in our ears kind of giving us advice that maybe you should get a mortgage broker who can find you something better so we kind of just went with it and we were in contract and Wells Fargo said you need to put 35% down and we were just like oh we were not planning to do that but because we had planned for a buffer we were able to pull it off but it was still a challenge that we had to kind of overcome. To But the good thing, good part about that is you've now done your first deal and you have that track record already built. And then now you kind of know what to do. And the second thing we learned from that was also how to, you know, pretty much pay a mortgage broker to find you a better deal. It's way worth it in the long run, especially when you're in a new market and you don't know who the local banks are that are lending in the commercial space. It definitely helps to pay that mortgage broker to find you the best leverage and cover your renovation and all that stuff as well.
1: And what about for your Oakland deals?
0: So ever since we moved our money back to Oakland, we have been using hard money. And then after the property stabilizes, we then refinance it to a, you know, like a five-year loan, you know, with a commercial lender. That's pretty much what we've been doing since we moved to Oakland. And the, the way we found our... Hard money was also like by accident. So this was back in 2015 when we, you know, moved the money from te- Texas to California. We were intending to do a 1031. So we went through the 1031 process and put brought the money to California. But there was one deal when there was a foundation issue and nobody would finance that deal. And we were expecting to get financing for that deal, but nobody would finance it. Now, we then said, OK, but we still want this deal. We still want to do it. There's enough upside in it. And we put a mortgage broker on it. He came back and said, no one's going to do this deal except for hard money. And then we found hard money. And that was kind of the pivotal moment when we said, oh, it sounds like we could do a lot more. And then we started to get money for financing for cash for keys alongside renovation. And that made things move a lot faster and easier.
1: Can you talk about some of the rates and terms that you're getting from your hard money lenders, as well as what you did after you refinanced into like a long-term commercial loan?
0: At about 9%. I think when we started, it was a little bit higher. And it was about, I think, 18 month loan. And when we refinanced, this was with, you know, like a commercial lender. And those were at about 4.27, something like that. And that's where we ended up on our refinance. And we do have one refinance also in the process, where the rate's not locked yet. So we'll find out about that.
1: And what about the LTVs for your hard money loans and, I guess, commercial side?
0: So on the hard money loans, they're always like about 80% LTV. And on the commercial loans, they were closer to 65, 70, 70, 75-ish. But now with COVID, it's like way low, way low. And we're barely covering, basically, they're just paying off our hard money loan at this point with no cash out. And even the appraisals come in a little lower and all that, but it's okay. It all works out.
1: Yeah, it's all part of this economic environment for sure. It's, It's very difficult right now.
0: Correct, yeah.
1: So can you tell us the deal, like, can you give us the example of your Oakland deals as far as the numbers go? And like, how did you decide to pick these properties? Again, it is strange because most people don't invest in the Bay Area. You're one of the very few people who invest in multifamily here in the Bay Area. But and especially in Oakland, where rent control is crazy. So we're going to talk about all those general challenges and your thought process behind it.
0: I mean, rent control is the biggest problem in California for an investor, from an investor point of view. There are people who are doing what I'm doing. They do exist. And I always kind of cringe a little bit, you know, when people say, oh, they, you know, they just plug in the numbers into their spreadsheet and then they look at the cash flow, they see how low it is and they're like, I'm out. Because there's a little bit more to, to that, right? And you, you kind of have to dig dig a little deeper to get into understanding that, how to take a unit from negative cash flow to a positive cash flow. And that's kind of where the cash for keys come in, the layout changes come in. And once you do that, the growth is exponential. So in markets like Oakland and San Francisco and Berkeley, where there's historically been rent controlled, units are severely under market. So they're not just like a little bit under market, they're severely under market. And so when you buy these properties, you do get them at a somewhat of a discount, not a huge discount, but still somewhat of a discount because of those low cash flows. And at that point, you got to decide how you want to execute on these deals. So cash for keys essentially is... An agreement between the owner and the tenant to mutually agree on a number on a dollar amount, which then the owner pays to the tenant in return for the tenant giving you the keys to the unit and moving out. So that's essentially what cash for keys really is. And what that helps you to do is you now are taking over a unit that is vacant and you can now bring that up to market. And if you want, I can go more into cash for keys or I can talk about kind of the next step, which is once you execute on cash for keys, you now have a vacant unit. Now you can do what I call the layout change, which is essentially to gut the unit and figure out a way for a unit to get to add value in that unit. So in one of our properties, the way we've done that is we bought all studio units. So when we bought it, they were all studio units, about 450 square foot or so. But it had a separate You know, kitchen. So when you walk in, it was an old studio, but it had like a kitchen. And so what we thought was, why don't we take the square footage of the kitchen if we just gutted the whole thing, did an open floor plan, you could take the square footage that was previously the kitchen, take a little bit more from the living space and make a bedroom. And now you have a junior one bedroom, and you can charge a much higher rent for a one bedroom than you can for a studio. So just by doing that, The bump up in rents we got was considerably higher than if we just converted that, you know, renovated that studio and kept it a studio.
1: Yes, you have to be more creative in a Bay Area deal.
0: Yes, absolutely. And there's this guy, if I can recommend a book to you and your uh, listeners, there's an older gentleman. His name is John T. Reed. He is a Bay Area investor. He went to West Point and Harvard and he wrote a book called How to Add Value to Real Estate. And it's a really good book. And it has a whole chapter on rent control. And it has, the whole book is full of gems. It's like, it makes you really think about value add in a whole different way than if you were to just, you know, like read bigger Pockets. You'd think the only way to value add is to do renovations. But there's a, so many ways, creative ways to do value add. And he has some of the best ideas.
1: So is that what you did when you were first getting to the Bay Area market? Is that like something you did to teach yourself? Because I don't see a lot of information out there of how to invest in the Bay Area.
0: Yeah, yeah, you know, you're right. I mean, I think that book was pretty pivotal in us taking that next step in California, because once we got the concept of forced depreciation, which we already did in some ways in Texas, but it didn't hit us and it wasn't as Clear what to do in California until we read that book and we were very clear, okay, we know if we do that gut renovation and we change that layout, the upside is definitely there. So some of these strategies, like in the short term, if you look at cash flow, cash flow doesn't get impacted that much. Like you, yes, you will make more money. but because that cash flow kind of rolls into your into the value of your property, when you do the you know the noi divided by cap rate number and when you when you do that number all that little extra that you're building up and a multiplied version of that is what your value of your property really is so i do recommend california as a good place to flip you can hold as well but it's not it still doesn't end up being a great cash flow city to invest in
1: yeah so unlike investing in say alabama or florida where you're investing for the cash flow in California, you're mostly getting the equity portion of it because the cap rates are a lot lower here. So every dollar you get is like $30 more or something. So some, some some multiplier of that dollar is a lot higher than it would be in Florida or Alabama.
0: Correct. Yes. So yeah, I mean, basically you take a dollar, if you added a dollar to value divided by 0.05, which is your 5% cap rate on average in California. And then that's basically one over 20, which means you added $20 to your value of your property. So that is essentially the math the exponential math that we need to be working if you want to you know invest and make money in California. The cash flow itself protects you from the downside, right? So if you have an apartment complex that's cash flowing, it protects you from the downside cuz you I mean worst case scenario like in covid or whatever, I just hold on to it and the cash flows, I'm good. There's no, nobody's going to force me have to force me to sell. And even if I had to finance my, you know, hold on to my hard money loan, it still makes sense for me because I have that equity is in there and there's a good amount of cash flow coming in. So it protects you from the downside as well, but it still doesn't end up being the best place for cash flow, which is why my next move is to take some of this money and go buy cash flow out of state.
1: Yeah. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. But can you help walk me through an example of a deal in Oakland? Because these numbers are so mind-boggling. And I've done a lot of practice with, say, multifamilies in Alabama or Florida where, all right, cap rate is 10%. That just means your NOI has to be, you know, 10% of your purchase price something like that. But with investing in California, specifically in places with high rent control, now you have to worry about not just purchase price, but also how much is it going to cost to do a gut job? How much is it going to cost for cash for keys? I kind of want to see your thought process and how you analyze deals for properties in the Bay Area.
0: I mean, the number one thing to look for is a true value add property, which is way below market rents, right? And sometimes buying vacant units are a good thing. And you'll see that anytime someone is selling a vacant property in any of these rent control areas, they will price a premium because it's vacant, right? So if you look for properties that are way below market, that's the starting point. After that, I recommend negotiating in your contract, putting into your contract a way to do cash for keys while you're in contract. I personally have not done this, but I do recommend a couple of my friends who are doing it now are able to put in into their contract that they start the cash for keys negotiation while they're in contract. So you kind of already know before you close if how many tenants are likely to move out. And that gives you a way better underwriting and knowing for sure how many units can get vacant. Now, what I found over the years of doing cash for keys is if it is a small number of units, so if you have only like two or three units, it's very hard to predict how many people will choose to take cash for keys, right? If you only have two people and they both don't want to move, you're basically stuck with a property that's making very, very little money. But as you have those in a larger number of units, the chances, the likelihood of someone taking the cash for keys is higher. And that is a true risk though. It is a political risk, but it's a true risk that you are taking uh, when you do that. But what we found over the years is that about half, once you hit about six to eight units, about half do half of the tenants do want to at least start the conversation. And then it just becomes a question of uh, picking a number that works for both you and the tenant.
1: What would you say is kind of like a ballpark number for cash for keys?
0: There is some resource. There's one, I think, lawyer out there who did some kind of survey for cash for keys, but it can be anywhere from, I mean, people say five to $30,000, but I've never had anything that was less than about $10,000. So my numbers are somewhere between ten dollars and $30,000. And the reason why it makes sense, so people like usually get sticker shock when you say that. They're like, whoa, why would I like do that? You have to really think about the multiplier effect of the new rents that you're going to get on that unit. So if you added, if you had a tenant who was paying $800 and now you're bumping up the rent to like say $2,000, it's about $1,200 more than what you were getting before. A $1,000 increase in your NOI is $240,000 increase in the value of your property. And the way I got to that number is basically take the $1,000 divided by a 5% cap rate or a 5 or 6% cap rate, you end up at about $240,000. So paying, you know, a sum of money for to, to get that potential upside. Yes, you have to subtract out your costs and you know uh, your cost of paying for the cash for keys factors in there and your cost of renovation, all that factors in there. But it still comes to a point where it is valuable to still pay that if you can. And that's also where the hard money comes in, is if you can get that financed, then that's even less money from your pocket that you need to pay to do cash for keys.
1: I see. Yeah. I don't know too many hard money lenders that offer that you probably need to have some experience before you can get something like that right
0: well conventus does so oh very cool here's a plug for you there we go yeah so we've been using conventus for the last at least three to four years and they've done all of our cash for keys as well as our renovations and purchase loan as well and essentially how it works is like kind of like the renovation draws right so you have so for example oakland has a very specific set of steps you need to go through in order to do cash for keys and you have to make sure you have to follow that otherwise you're kind of really putting yourself in a bad place so you follow the steps which is essentially you give a disclosure document to the city to say i'm going to start negotiating now the city says you know whatever you submitted it so i know you're going to do it then you give a copy to your tenant and if your tenant's interested then they'll kind of start talking to you and then you go back and forth if you reach an agreement then you sign another document called the move out agreement and that details the terms of hey you you know this is the date i'm going to move out this is the amount of money we are agreeing on and on that date you show up with a cashier's check you know give it to them and they give you the keys they're completely moved out you make sure it's vacant and then you file all the required paperwork with your hard money lender. Usually they require a driver's license, a copy of move out, a couple of other things. You file all of that. And then they send an inspector to go check the unit, make sure it's actually vacant. And once it's vacant, then they disperse that money out to you.
1: And is it at the same like 80% LTV or how's that work?
0: No, 100%. I mean, it depends on what the terms you negotiate, but yeah.
1: So I guess it's kind of like a rehab cost where, like you said withdraws. So they can fund 100%, but it's not paid out until after they actually move out.
0: Correct. That's right.
1: So interesting. Okay. Now, what's your typical turnaround time from acquiring the property to having it fully stabilized and then ready to sell again?
0: I mean, in our case, it takes a while to kind of go through this process of cash for keys, renovation, and all of that stuff. In our case, it's about a year to a year and a half. We tend to maybe Extend it out to two years, and if we want ten thirty one, then we kind of hold it for about a two year period. If we want ten thirty one, otherwise we just sell it at the year and a half point. If the property is large enough, and this is my own criteria, this you know it's not like everyone's criteria, but once we do two flips, and I, what I do is flip flip burr, that's what I like to do. So I flip a couple of times, grow that money exponentially, and then I do bigger and bigger deals, and then the last deal is a big one, and I just hold it for cash flow at that point. And then if I want to refinance it at a later point, I refinance it.
1: So right now, are you holding some of those apartment buildings? Yeah, I am. And they're all in Oakland still. Yes. Oh wow.
0: Yeah, I mean, once I hit a hundred thousand dollars in cash flow, I hold it because it's that's good.
1: So a net positive per year. Yeah. Jeez, congratulations!
0: <laughs> I mean, that's why I recommend. Even though people love the burr, I do recommend growing that money exponentially and then burying. Because if it's burr, you just buy a fourplex, you take your damn payment out, buy another fourplex, but you, you lose that exponential growth that you can get from buying a bigger or larger number of units and then parlaying that to a, a larger number. So if you already start with apartments and you flip an apartment, you are making way more money on that one deal and then that grows exponentially. And so you can get to a point where you can cash flow. And it's not just me. There's other people out there who are doing it. And I've met them. So I know they're doing it. And they're young people too.
1: You should hook me up with them. I want to know more people who do this. Yeah. Because it is rare, right? Most of the people we talk to are all about, you know, the bigger pocket strategy of cash flow out of state, you know, in Turkey properties. So,
0: And that works. But if you are willing to go the extra mile, and I think that's kind of the bottom line of California in general, if you're willing to take a little bit more risk, And if you're willing to do more work, then California will pay off for you. If you're just following the book kind of and just want to make it simpler, straightforward, and there's value in that. I mean, eventually I'm going to be passive too. So I do see that and now I have kids and it's impossible. It's really, really hard to kind of keep all these balls in the air and keep doing all of this work on your properties, because these are extensive work, foundation work, and all of that stuff. It's like, it's a lot of work. But the upside definitely exists. And there's no way I would have been able to grow if I didn't do that.
1: Yeah, because you always need some kind of revenue generator, whether it be your job or some kind of business to then correct use that money to then buy properties to hold on to. Makes perfect sense.
0: Correct. Yeah. Which is why I kind of like the Bay Area because, and I highly recommend to your listeners that if you do have a job, keep it and start investing. And then once you've, you know, you snowballed it into a big enough number and then you quit your job because otherwise it just becomes another job that you have to do to get that money into your real estate investments.
1: So what would you say is kind of like a minimum requirement in terms of the funds you need to get started with a project?
0: I do think with the kind of numbers you need to get into apartments, and if you're doing it for the first time, you tend to need to have somewhere between two hundred and fifty to $400,000 to get started. But once you do that, and once you've grown your money enough, then you can really figure out a way to not have to put more in and just keep rolling that into more and more.
1: That makes a lot of sense.
0: But if you continue to work for a couple of more years, you can have a couple of avenues going. So I think that worked also in our favor because we didn't have kids until later in life. And so we started a couple of different channels of these going before I quit my job. So,
1: mm-hmm. And so right now you're a full-time real estate professional?
0: Yes. Yeah.
1: It must be nice for tax deductions.
0: Yeah, for sure. I think when I did the math of what my real estate professional status would save me in taxes, it was almost the same as my income. I mean, as my base salary.
1: Yeah, that's nice. You make more or the same amount of money by staying at home versus...
0: Correct, pretty much.
1: Yeah, going to work.
0: And I like real estate. I've always enjoyed it. And it gives me more time to do more real estate. So I'm all for
1: it. What would you say is kind of like a good, maybe starter project for someone who wants to get into this kind of real estate investing strategy?
0: So I get asked this question a lot. And I really think that if you're starting out, don't hesitate to go out of state. I really don't think that's a bad idea. I really think it's a good idea because of all the additional risks you're taking in California. You still can do it. I, I, I do still, for, you have to kind of weigh the options. You know, is your priority really to have your property close to you? And if it is, then maybe you will take that extra risk to stick around in California. But if it's not, and you have, say, a lower down payment or you have some other constraint, then start out a state. Because if I bought 12 units in, in Texas for $700,000, that's not too bad, right? You can start somewhere around that number and you can do a small value add so you don't have to even put a big down payment. So it can already be a property that's positively cash flowing and you're doing a small value add so you still get a little bump up, but it's not maybe like doubling your money or something, but you're still getting a small bump up. You get your uh, you know feet wet and then you can decide you know how you want to go from there. But once you see the magic of the larger number of units, I really doubt people go back.
1: And how about for a property here in the Bay Area? Should they start with a six unit, 12 unit?
0: I mean, the basic premise that I really kind of drill into is the moment you cross the five unit mark, you are now a commercial multifamily property. And that's a very, very important number to keep in mind because of the way properties are valued. So if you think about real estate, there's two main ways they're valued. One is the comps method, right? So you look for comps in the neighborhood that are similar to your property. And so your property is valued similar to that one. The second method is the income method, which is what the commercial properties are valued. Appraisers for commercial property are used to value commercial property. So the income method essentially is telling you that the more income your property makes, the more valuable it is. So my property could be, in the same block as yours and mine is making more income and mine is valued at $3 million, yours is valued at $1 million, just because of the difference in income. We might have the same number of units, we might look exactly the same, but if our incomes are different, then the value of the property is different. And that is so clear in the way a commercial underwriter or a commercial appraiser looks at the property when you have five units or more. So the moment you are four units and under, you're still on a residential loan and your property is valued very differently than when you're five and over. So in California, I do recommend playing in the investor space than playing in the four and under space. You still can. And I have a friend who is doing this right now. He bought a tri- triplex in Berkeley and he added two ADUs in the back. And from our understanding of financing, when he's done adding those ADUs, he will now have a fiveplex. And he will now get put a commercial loan on it because he has five certificates of occupancy. He'll put a commercial loan on it and his income from the property will drive the value of his property.
1: Yeah, it's great.
0: And this is also like the downside with house, you know, the putting ADUs in the back of a house is that when you go to refinance your property, are you really going to get the value you're looking for? Right, that's a big question mark, and that I don't know if anyone has really answered that question. Because if you put two ADUs in the backyard or three ADUs or whatever in the backyard of a house, it's no longer a house that someone wants to buy. The only people who are buying it are other investors from you. And the bank, the way the bank looks at that, is going to be different than how a bank looks at a five-unit or even a four-unit, right? Because they're looking at that income divided by the cap rate to get to that value, much more more heavily than in a foreign under property.
1: So after you do all these renovations and you're renting at much higher numbers, do you need to wait some kind of seasoning period before you can put on the market or refinance?
0: For a refinance, it's about at least three months or so of stabilized, and not all banks are okay with that, but some are, so at least three months of stabilized rents for refinance. If you're putting it for sale, it's about the same, like two to three months of stabilized income is good enough to, because they, I mean, they know that this is going to continue and they don't value it. You can't put like a Freddie or Fannie loan on it, but you can get a a bank to refinance it with a couple of months of stable income.
1: And you were mentioning earlier how you don't just do some kind of easy rehab where it's just paint and carpet. You're actually doing some layout changes and that sounds very expensive and very complicated. So like who's helping you throughout that process? Are you the one designing the whole layouts?
0: No, no, no. So the key to being truly passive with apartments is finding a good contractor and a good property manager to work together, right? When I was doing the deal in Texas, the good thing was the property manager had an in-house contracting team. This is also very, very important for your listeners who are looking to do out-of-state because that is the key to really making it passive is to find a property manager who has an in-house contracting team and that they use for all of their investors, And that simplifies the process quite a bit. Yes, you can kind of nickel and dime the contractor and maybe he'll like, you know, put a bit of a margin on it, but it gives you the ability to kind of sit back and say, I like this layout, just do this on my property. What does it cost? And you negotiate the budget a bit and then it's often running to the races. So you're not getting involved in what appliance to buy and what, you know, paint color or what backsplashes, none of those things. You're kind of truly acting as an investor at that point.
1: Can you walk us through a deal that you did in the past, including like your acquisition price, construction price, what the rents were before and what the rents were after and also like what's the final value after all said and done?
0: Sure. So I'll talk about a deal in Oakland that was actually, is very doable. I didn't want to pick one that was like too far, you know, like sometimes you pick a deal that's 2014 and people say, oh, I can't do it now <laughs> because, you know, you, you got it when the, you know, the curve was going up. So I'll pick a deal that we did in 2018. It's a five-unit apartment, you know, five plex in Oakland. We bought it at 1.25 million. Uh, we put about 180, well, let's see, 180,000 into it, and for the renovations, it had five units when we bought two were vacant, and we negotiated cash for keys on one more, and then the other two tenants still there. They still stayed there. And after renovations, so the one bedrooms were at 2500 The two bedrooms were at $3,000 apiece each a month. And the renovations are about, so because to your point, because the renovations are kind of gut jobs, they're about somewhere between thirty dollars and $40,000 per unit. And they look really nice when they're done and all of that good stuff. But yes, it takes about thirty dollars to $40,000 to do those renovations. There was some exterior renovation work. There was some roof work. About another, let me see the breakdown. Yeah, the roof was about ten thousand. Foundation was about thirty-five thousand. We did add storage units. That was about five thousand. So storage units rented about fifty dollars a piece per month, and we put in five storage units, and that cost us about five thousand, but increased our the value of our property a lot more than that. We added windows for about fifteen thousand dollars. So that was the kind of the renovation breakdown. A holding cost for about $50,000 just to keep, you know, servicing the debt and such while we were doing the renovations. And we sold it at $1.73 million and about 5.5 cap rate. And our profits were about $150,000 on that. The cash on cash was about 14%. If we held on to that property and we just refinanced it and took no cash out, it would have cash flowed about $40,000. And if I did cash out, I guess we don't need to get into that, but yeah, I didn't cash it out and neither did I. I just turned around and sold it and took my cash out.
1: Awesome. So that 180K, that's only renovating the three vacant units, right? You didn't touch the other two. where people living in it?
0: Correct. Yeah.
1: Gotcha. Well, yeah, thanks for sharing that because it's good to see like what a deal looks like. And what was the cash for keys for this particular individual?
0: $15,000.
1: Okay. Yeah. 15,000 seems, you know, it's a lot, but it's reasonable for the Bay Area. Like I mentioned in my other podcasts, like I had a hoarder in one of my houses and we did cash for keys as well, but it was only $300. (laughs) Just enough for her to, you know, happy and get, get by.
0: Yeah, it's the opportunity cost of staying versus leaving for a lot of them. I've had cases where people took the money and, you know, bought a house in, I don't know, Kansas. And they were so happy because they said, there's no way I would have saved that down payment. And I was already thinking of leaving or, you know, so the people who do want it are people who are forthcoming about wanting to move out of the area in a lot of ways.
1: Exactly. So... I guess you're you have your thing set up in Oakland already. You're trying to expand to a new venture. Do you want to talk about your new ventures?
0: So last year, I sold a bunch in Oakland, and we were we're getting to the point where we've done a lot of the work work of building capital and we're looking for more cash flow. So we started to look out of state to you know bring ourselves to a point where we can you know relax a little bit enjoy our lives a little bit more, all of that good stuff. So uh, essentially, I, we got a co-star account and started to really dig through all markets, all possible markets, really, and started underwriting deals kind of almost daily, right? So looked at many, many deals. And as we were doing this, the market was kind of, you know, where it's at. It's kind of almost at the peak before pre-COVID, right? So it was very stable. We're not seeing a lot of upside. Even cash flows were pretty compressed, compared to what we were looking for. So we highly value-add people anyway. So we were looking to say, where can I do value-add and still end up getting more cash flow? And I listened to your podcast with Shannon about hotels, and I was just about getting into understanding zoning and land use. I was personally looking to see if I could buy a land and split it and build two houses on it just in the Bay Area. I was like, I want a free house. Let me see if I can do that. So I went to City Hall and I learned about, you know, what it takes to split a piece of land. I learned about zoning. I just like literally just showed up and asked questions at City Hall. And then I got in that evening. I think I listened to your podcast with Shannon and she talked about rezoning a piece of land from, you know, retail or anything pretty much into a hotel, which was just her play. And so I reached out to her. I went and met her, and I learned about how she does it. And I kind of immediately put it into a spreadsheet. And I looked at the spread, and I was like, "I've never seen such a big spread before." Because rezoning is highly lucrative. It's high risk, but it's also high return. But I, I saw that and I was like, "Wow, this is really good." But how do how can I parlay it to multifamily? And I didn't. I was just kind of looking all over the place. And then a deal came through a broker where he said, here's a hotel. It it has half of the piece of land is already zoned in a way that you could put a multifamily on it, that you could convert it to multifamily. So you still had two parcels of land. One was already zoned for multifamily, but the other one wasn't. But that deal fell through. But it put the idea in my head that you could find zoning where, You can do, which has two land uses. So it allows for a hotel use as well as a multifamily use. Once I got that piece, I was like, wow, so I don't even need to rezone it. I can just find a piece of land where you can do both. And that de-risks a lot of the risk around rezoning. So then I just went and, you know, went hunting for those pieces of land that are zoned a certain way with the help of some consultants who do this full time in those area. So they know the the local knowledge. And then I found a property that I'm in contract on right now, which is a 115 unit hotel that I'm looking to convert uh, to multifamily.
1: Are you able to talk about maybe like how the numbers work out where you buy a hotel that you can convert to multifamily and why you think this is a better play than just keeping it as a hotel and managing it better?
0: It clearly doesn't work in every market. Right. You couldn't take a hotel in California and convert it to a multifamily and it won't be better. I think we have to understand the concept of what they call highest and best use. So any piece of land has what they call highest and best use, which is, you know, in some markets, the hotel obviously makes more cash flow. They have higher expenses, but they have more cash flow as well. And so a hotel becomes higher, better use than a multifamily. But there are some markets where hotels are older. So they were, say, built in the 70s. There's a lot of new hotels coming into the market, and they don't have occupancy. Their incomes are looking low. Their net operating incomes are looking low. And it makes more sense for them to put those kind of properties into a long-term contract, like a multifamily, like a lease, and run it as a multifamily where the math just works out better. Like I said, it only works out when the purchase price is low. The unit number is high. And that market can support a certain rent. So you need to kind of model all this out before you can really conclude that this is a good property to buy.
1: And how does that whole process work? Because a hotel and apartment complex are two very different things. You know, like in a hotel, you have a nice lobby, you have an elevator and whatnot. But in apartments, yeah, yeah, you have an elevator, but you don't really have this nice lobby or a pool. I don't know. Like, how how's the whole thing work?
0: I mean, it's interesting. I mean, I've been thinking about this myself, too. Like, the hotels that look like large towers, they tend to not be the best for multifamily conversions. The hotel that looks garden-style, that already looks like a multifamily, there's a whole bunch of hotels that look like that, which are garden-style, like, spread out, like, a couple of floors— and they pretty much do look like multifamily. They probably have like a balcony or, a, you know, like a, like a w- little walkway that's open. So they look really like multifamily, so much so you wouldn't think that they were a hotel in the past. It's not really obvious in those cases. In cases where it's like a large tower, it does feel like you have to do a lot more to make it feel and look like multifamily. But in the garden style in um, hotels, you really don't have to do much. There are changes you have to make for uh, sprinkler systems. There are um, things that the city will need from you in terms of parking. You need to have you know, one and a half spaces or two spaces for every unit of parking. So not all properties will fit those criteria. So it's about narrowing it down to doing all of that stuff and then well now that you know the implementation part of it is also a lot of capex so if i'm buying it for say two two and a half million i'm going to put another one and a half two million into it to get it to be an apartment complex because i have to meter and you know you know there's a whole bunch of things that need to go into doing that and putting a kitchen in it that's the big part because most hotels don't have a kitchen. And if you put a kitchen into it, now it becomes more like a living area and living space.
1: What would you say is like the budget per unit?
0: The budget per unit. So the good thing about hotels is they don't have a lot of deferred maintenance because they, you know, it's a hotel. They have to keep it looking good and doing well in order to operate it. So it doesn't have a lot of deferred maintenance. But yes, yeah, about 10000 to 12000 in those areas to renovate that one unit. And then most of the remaining amount is all coming from the larger capex numbers for sprinkler systems and roofs and sewage, you know, sewer lateral replacement, all of those things.
1: And since so this is your first time doing a more complicated project of you know converting a hotel into multifamily, is your lender requiring you to do anything special or bring on some kind of expert on your team?
0: We are in the process of getting financing for this deal, so I've not seen anything of that sort. They seem to be happy with our track record so far. And they do know that this deal is a good deal, so much so that we're still getting 80% LTVs, LTCs, sorry, LTCs on these deals. So 80% loan to cost, which includes our renovation costs and such. So I was worried about that, given that we're in COVID, that we might have to put down a larger down payment or, you know, and such. But it sounds like the, the banks that do this, our banks that who have already done it and they know they are good deals, so they've underwritten it. Are underwritten it similar to how I would? So they don't seem to be undercutting us on anything really at this point. But I haven't closed yet, so. Well,
1: best of luck to you on that one. And are these lenders like local lenders, or do you find them through like brokers, or how's how the whole work out?
0: I do find them through brokers. So the moment. I've seen a lot of value in using brokers over the years. And so I do tend to use brokers, especially when it's a new market. And when you're doing complicated stuff like this, you don't want to be dealing with that at this point. But one valuable thing I did do is I found comps that were also hotel conversions. And I looked up their title on uh, Chicago title, I'm just sitting here in California, I just put it into a Chicago title, looked who their lender was and just like, call them up. And then eventually I put a broker on it, which is easier, but that's one cool way to find a bank that will finance a difficult deal.
1: That's smart. it's good that you're very resourceful. And, you know, it's good to hear that you heard my episode with Shannon and that inspired you to take some action on the hotel side.
0: And COVID happened. So it was all like this perfect storm. And I'm definitely very grateful for that because there's no way all these pieces would have come together if not for that, you know, that initial piecing of those few puzzles in the beginning.
1: Exactly. What would you say is kind of like your greatest challenge so far in your entire real estate investing career?
0: The greatest challenge is always execution always, right? Because at least on our deals, if you, you have to be on top of execution, otherwise you're losing. So staying on top of execution not spreading yourself too thin on too many deals at the same time is key to making stuff work in the long run. Because the only time you really lose in real estate is when you're forced to sell when you don't want to sell. And if there's any way you can hold on to it or plan for it that and not spread yourself too thin, that is the key to making it work. And if you feel discomfort, that means you're overleveraged. You got to sell. The moment you think, even we have come dangerously close to overleveraging, we But the moment you recognize it, you got to get out as quick as you can. And then never repeat that mistake again. So that's always key when you're trying to do multiple deals. So that's my biggest tip. Focus on execution. Do whatever you need to do to get processes in place where execution is smooth and you can do it with, if you have a job, just make sure you can do it with whatever else you're doing with your life. And then just keep going. Snowball effect.
1: Did you ever have any issues with contractors? Because I know you're doing some very big projects.
0: We definitely have had problems with contractors. I think our biggest challenge was when we were doing multiple projects. I mean, the good thing about apartments is if you sell one and you buy another one that's big, you can focus all your effort on doing due diligence really well. So you can do a foundation inspection, a roof inspection, you know numbers for every line item. But the moment you start to do multiple deals and If you're not doing this full-time you kind of can lose that ability to stay in control of everything so yeah i mean we've had problems with contractors going late and we've had problems when on multiple projects where we gave all of the projects to one contractor because he wanted it right like he said i'll do it it'll be great and you know we'll both make money and all of that good stuff and then when push came to shove he couldn't handle multiple projects And so we had to then redirect them and say, okay, finish this one first. And that one was just sitting over there. The other one, other projects were just sitting there and doing nothing. And instead, if we had found multiple projects, multiple contractors and put them on multiple projects, we would have, you know, saved a lot of time and money. So yeah, the contractors definitely, there's definitely challenges to that. But once you find a good one, keep them.
1: Yeah, Absolutely. So this has been a very amazing podcast. Thank you for sharing all of your stories and, you know, giving me personally the inspiration to look harder in our Bay Area market. What are some tips that you like to leave with our listeners before we end our show today?
0: The biggest tip is, at least for me, is to really go the extra mile and take that one step beyond what you're hearing and seeing in the media with respect to real estate investing. And actually, I highly encourage people to model because people ask questions about, you know, is, is cash flow better or appreciation better? But if you would put it onto a spreadsheet, you could see how much or better or worse it is. If you want appreciation, model 5%. If you want cash flow, like model that. If you're afraid of, you know, having to put down a larger down payment, model that. If you're afraid the market's going to turn, model a higher cap rate, right? So if you think the market's going to go up and cap rates are going to go up, model that that. Right? So there, I really recommend instead of uh, people, especially who are sitting kind of on the fence and not being able to make a decision, should I be in state? Do I go out of state? You really have to put it onto an Excel sheet and really look at it in order to make that decision. And when you do that enough number of times, it becomes very clear. And so, yeah, so doing some of that with either with another investor or, you know, your partner or spouse, someone who knows their stuff, or even posting it on bigger pockets, asking for feedback or whatever, is really, really valuable. If, if you could do that, I really think apartment investing is not an impossible task for anyone, really.
1: And we live in a time when we have all these tools at our fingertips. Can you imagine there was a time before Excel existed and you have to do everything by paper, right? So we have spreadsheets, Google Sheets, you can do it all really, really simply. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Sri, thank you so much for being on our show today. How can people get in contact with you?
0: So you can reach me at the That's my website. My email is shri@theshrilatagroup.com. at the shri I'm on Instagram as Bay Area underscore Matai family. I do have a coaching program if you want to, you know, if you're sitting on the fence and you're figuring out, you need to figure out which way you're going. And if you've been doing that for too long, then I do have the like co-working sessions where I'll sit with you and we'll work through the math. That's valuable. And I also have more information about more deals like the hotel to multifamily conversion that I'm doing now. And we can see how we can work together on one of those as well. So feel free to reach out to me on my website theshrilatagroup.com or my email, shri at theshrilatagroup.com.
1: Shri, Shri, thank you so much for your time. This has been an amazing conversation.
0: Thank you so much.
1: Here are some of the key takeaways from this episode. Simply buying and holding real estate in the Bay Area is a good way for you to lose money every month. You need to go in with a strategy to become profitable. Shri likes to acquire properties where the rents are incredibly low relative to market value. And she then looks at what she can do to increase the rents. Converting a 2 bedroom, 1 bath into a 3 bedroom, 2 bath can drastically increase rents. And since cap rates are so low in the Bay Area, the multiplier effect of increasing your net operating income will drastically increase the value of the building itself. You can then sell or refinance the property and move on to the next project. By creating wealth in this fashion, you'll become a real estate professional in no time. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can find the show notes and other episodes on our site, everythingori.com/podcast. If you live in the Bay Area, Join our meetup group, where we meet up twice a month in San Jose at meetup.com slash everythingrei. And if you thought this was a great episode, let me know what your key takeaway was and share it with a friend who's interested in real estate investing. Thanks and have a great day. This was another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. If you enjoyed the show, leave us a five-star rating. It'll only take a second and it'll help a lot. You can contact me at sean at everythingrei.com. That's S-E-A-N at everythingrei.com. Thanks and have a great day.